The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A uh, very warm welcome to oh, It's going to be a very key day ahead for these markets as well. You're watching Scorebox with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore, myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. So U.S. markets definitely on tenterhooks with all eyes on the Federal Reserve as investors wait to see whether Fed Chair Jerome Powell will react to rising bond yields and increasing inflation speculation. I see a lot more risk coming out of this crisis with an economy that is not as strong as it needs to be then I see the risk of losing control over inflation. It's 7 a.m. in The Hague, where polling stations will open their doors in around 30 minutes' time. It's the third and final day of voting in an election that could see the Prime Minister Mark Rutte win a fourth consecutive term, having resigned in January over a child benefits scandal. The European Union's medicines agency looks to reassure the public over the safety of the Oxford AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine amid concerns over possible side effects. Currently, we are still firmly convinced that the benefits of the AstraZeneca vaccine in preventing COVID-19 with its associated risk of hospitalization and death outweigh the risk of these side effects. And Uber's more than 70,000 drivers in the UK get workers' rights from today, earning the national living wage and benefits, of course, like holiday and sick pay, this after a landmark ruling by the Supreme Court last month. Good morning, Karen. Just looking at, um, there's a man over my shoulder looking very sternly at me, and it reminds me of being at school with a, a headmaster or a head of house or someone just going, Sedgwick, what are you doing? Because I think that's what Powell would be saying next uh, if and when I say what I'm going to say. But this is a good thing that he's having some impact on you, because the point is Powell's not <laughs> been having impact on markets with his communication. Well, I think that's actually a spot on point as well, because this very stern man behind me doesn't like the kind of language about inflation. He doesn't like the fact that people are uh, rising the cost of borrowing a- across the board and the yield curve steepening on the back of inflation concerns. He's probably happy with it if we say it's because we think the US economy uh, is motoring along rather nicely, because we think the jab program in the United States is actually picking up a real head of steam as well. So you've got two really big positives there. The US economy is bouncing very nicely uh, from 2020. You've got the inoculations of vaccines in the United States way, way and above what we're seeing in continental Europe. But this man gets a bit stern he does look stern, doesn't he? He was stern when I met him actually at the G7 in Chantilly, by the way. Any chance for comments? No, none whatsoever, Mr. Cedric. So anyway, so, so the fact of the matter is the markets, and I said on in the headlines, and I actually changed the word. I don't normally change the headlines for the producers, but I put in the word tenterhooks because I like the word tenterhooks because it does, for me, typify what everyone's thinking. It's like, yes, okay, we want the vaccination programme. We want the growth in the economy. We want the unemployment rate to go down. That's what he's trying to achieve as well. Certainly two out of those three. But we don't want to see inflation peaking to such a level that he has to start making some form of verbal intervention or 
God forbid, physical intervention in the markets to douse some of those longer term rates down as well. So the markets yesterday, they're almost undramatic, which is actually quite interesting. They took a pause from the big rallies we've seen. I think previously I said the Dow had rallied seven out of seven sessions. The S&P had had similar kind of gains over the last a week or so. The Nasdaq's had a bit more of a rocky ride, but my goodness me, towards the end of last week, had a big rally as well. So the markets have got a lot in the tank in terms of having a rally on expectations on growth and not worrying too much about inflation as well. But what we are going to get today is three things. One, we'll get the announcement. We're not going to see a rate change. Two, we're going to get the press conference, and that's where it's going to be very interesting. But before the second point, you're going to get the summary of economic project. Uh, projections as well. Uh, and it's the tweaks to the dot plot on inflation, I think, especially that people will be interested. So have a look at the transports as well. Transports historically are seen as a great indicator of where we're going next. But my goodness me, I mean, I said about the valuations, look at this. I don't know if the director is about my age, but I don't think you can get up there and have a look. I'll just undo, loosen a bit these days. 99% higher one year move uh, on the transports as well, 99% increase over that period as well. So huge rally we've seen there as well. Let's see if he can do the Russell 2K as well. He's, he's a good old fellow, my, my, my great friend Rodway. Uh, and as you can see on the Russell 2K, 2K even, uh, big, big rally uh, over the last 12 months as well. Karen, but one sector, and I think slightly surprisingly for me, one sector has become all about inflation concerns uh, and interest rate concerns, and it's to do with future cash flows and discounting and what have you, and it's the tech sector, a tech sector which I thought was going through structural change and hence slightly more immune uh, to the cyclical vagaries of interest rates. Yeah, we've seen huge swings in recent sessions, not yesterday necessarily, but a lot of front-loaded action in recent weeks around the momentum stocks, the big high flyers, so to speak, but also around the FANG stocks. Yesterday, you could see some of those big name stocks, the likes of Apple in particular, that was a big driver for the Nasdaq to the upside, a gains of 1.2%. But I've been pointing out a lot of the analysts have been saying a lot of positives about this particular stock, and that was in the face of selling the other week. And I think what you've seen on the fund side, money has moved back into some of these areas of the market. And even in a day like yesterday, where there wasn't a huge amount of market action, it was nearly that picked up some steam, Alphabet, Amazon, those stocks all in favour. But Twitter coming off, and you can see Tesla, I mentioned the high flyers, while the ARK Innovation Fund also reversed yesterday. Tesla stock down 4.3%. A quick look at Treasuries and uh, what we've seen off the 1.64 level that we hit last week and very much hugging this 1.6 level. Uh, you know, we, we were talking yesterday about the sort of activity we saw. It was a lull. A day earlier, we saw a bit more momentum. And unfortunately, it feels like we are going to script. Unfortunately, though, for Jay Powell, the next part of that script seems to be if he's too dovish today, we may get that movement on these bond yields. They may try and test some of his power at this point and they may push that level up. So it could be a coiled spring But as Ben Bernanke found in 2013, and Jeff knows this, uh, perhaps even better than you and I, because he studies these things a lot more depth as well. Oh, he's in the middle. Oh, my goodness me. How scary. Uh, good morning, Jeffrey. But as you know, as well as anyone, no matter what Jay Powell says today, there'll be some smarty pants out there on Wall Street who'll have an algorithm that'll pick up one word and say, he means this, when actually Jay Powell says, no, I'm just saying what I think. Good morning, my friend. Yeah, very good morning to you. No, I, I think all the uh, comments uh, that you guys have made um, very applicable to the current situation that we're in. I mean, my my question, I would guess, is are we becalmed or are we churning? And I think we're churning rather than becalmed. But 
We'll get to that in just a second. I, I've just got a bit of sound uh, for the audience. So let's just play that and then we can move on and talk a bit more about the Fed and the outlook for the markets here. And this piece of sound comes for, from the former Treasury Secretary, uh, Jack Liu. Uh, he's expressed some concerns about the state of the U.S. economy, but he's also pointed out that ultimately uh, the, U- the U.S. government had to take the steps it's taken uh, because of the scale of the pandemic challenge. Let's just listen to the clip. Now, as you look ahead, uh, interest rates will uh, creep up. Whether they stabilize in the 2 to 3% range or whether we see a great deal of inflation is what the debate uh, in the last few weeks has been about. For my own part, um, I see a lot more risk of coming out of this crisis with an economy that is not as strong as it needs to be than I see the risk of losing control over inflation. This is not the 1970s. We're not talking about funding a war for a decade. We're talking about getting through a crisis. The question will come, what do we do in terms of policy at the end of the crisis? And I've always believed that when you're in a crisis, you do what you need to do to get out of it. And then you have to go back to a balanced fiscal program. Well, Fed officials will publish their latest growth forecasts after today's meetings, uh, with rates expected, obviously, to be left on hold. The FOMC will also unveil its rate guidance for the years ahead, with investors keeping a keen eye on when those rates will be lifted. So the big question, of course, is how far out are we on the dot plot in terms of where the Fed thinks the first interest rate hike may come? And that piece of information will be closely scrutinised today. But just coming back to the point that I was making earlier, I mean, I don't think Jay Powell has to do very much today here. I think the market is watching the latest information. And what is the latest information from the data points? Retail sales and industrial production were rather lacklustre here, which gives the Fed the justification it needs to keep this easy monetary policy going. It also, I think, will just encourage uh, Fed members to continue to talk down the risks around inflation at this stage. The other piece of information that I think the markets are having to conjure with, and whilst it's not directly relevant to the FOMC perhaps today, there is, of course, a connection because we live in a, uh, a joined up world. And that's the reassessment I think the markets are also making here about the prospects for this very robust reflation. And I just get the sense that the reason perhaps we are doing this churn between cyclicals and growth at this stage and whether to go to emerging markets, whether to move to Europe and take your money out of the States and out of the dollar is because we now have obviously rising infection levels in some major countries in Europe like Germany and France. And this suspension of the vaccine program I think is just getting a few people worried that the much vaunted uh, reflation that everybody's been pricing in may not look as robust as had been previously expected through the summer here. So I think there's a, a lot for investors to think about as we go into this FOMC meeting. I think the frustration may be at the end of the day, they come out of this not le- not really learning very much more or not getting any more uh, very sharp signals from Jay Powell and the Fed as to what they should be doing at this next stage. So 
Markets are going to churn. As you pointed out, the transports have had that peak. We're close to highs on these major indices. But at this stage, I'm not sure that you're getting many fresh signals about where to allocate to next. For me, the danger in the trade at this stage is that fund managers are mostly all on one page. There's a Bank of America survey out yesterday. And instead of it being coronavirus as the number one issue dominating psychology, it is now around inflation. Uh, The concerns that you're going to see this taper tantrum that we witnessed back in 2013. That's what the majority of uh, money managers polled by Bank of America were now concerned about. And that tells you why we're seeing so much rotation in markets. One of the problems I have is that you've got a lot of US-centric sentiment coming through the markets here. You've got the accelerated vaccine program. If you look at these uh, assumptions around uh, the the growth numbers, uh, the Fed was at 4.2% in December. The most bullish forecasts out there are from Goldman Sachs at about 8% for this year. That is a very strong growth path, and there's no denying that. But if you uh, start to piece in the European use flow, I mean, the suspension of vaccine programs, the AstraZeneca program in you know, many European countries, that's a major stumbling block. News flow out yesterday about a Brittany uh, variant that may not be detected by COVID tests. There's still a lot of bad news in the recovery story globally. And we're talking about, you know, the United States and, and the, the Fed that is managing central bank policy for America, but could it be also impacted by other global events in the past? We've had the conversation about what the Fed does when it's setting policy, when there are outside influences. We've seen historically emerging market hiccups in the late 90s and uh, European issues in the in the noughties, and that can create problems for the US economy as well. We've seen it time and time, so they will have a nod to that. I think you're right. But where will the tension be in the markets? And it's very interesting you both alluding to the fund managers and, and where the tension is. Look, the truth of the matter is you're not going to see uh, extreme violence. I mean, we've seen a big move in yields. We're not going to see extreme violence in the Treasury market. Probably not. And in the equity market, it seems that everyone wants to use their stimulus checks for that as well. So that's why I think the old-fashioned, I know um, a lot of our younger viewers don't like to look at old-fashioned ways doing things on Reddit communities, they look in a different way. But that's why the old-fashioned canary in the coal mine that is the corporate debt market is very often a great indicator of what interest rate moves mean for the broader economy and for broader US corporates as well. I mean, and I'll just go back to real basics. If you think your government is going to raise a hell of a lot more money, possibly if your government's just raised a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, then wouldn't you ease up a little bit on your Treasury position anticipating a large amount of flow? Just basic supply and demand as well. So if that does pick up a little bit, the yields on the back of that anticipation, what does that do to the corporate bond market? Which, as we all know, um, regardless of Reddit communities out there, remains one of the most illiquid markets there. Equities liquid, Treasury's liquid, corporate bond market can get very sticky. Can I just quiz you, why do you think there's not going to be violence in the bond market? I didn't say there wouldn't be violence. I said there can't be the same level of violence because I mean it's unlikely that the U.S. authorities will let, because don't forget, who's the biggest buyer in town of U.S. Treasuries? Uh, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the authorities, it's the FOMC. So I don't know, Jeff, if you feel differently about that corporate bond, but I think of all the areas of the market where I could see the greatest tension, I think the corporate bond market deserves its moniker as the canary in the coal mine. Well, absolutely. And I think the problem is that it's largely a market that, Uh, a lot of investors take for granted or just ignore. And um, for example, Greensill, I think, is a a very good example of where ultimately there may be a few hand grenades planted uh, just waiting to go off. And I think people do need to continue to focus on the degree of leverage that we see in the corporate bond market, not least because uh, that leverage 
potentially could act as a drag on the earnings growth that many are hoping for in the summer. And I'll just pick up on your uh, sovereign bond point, because I think that's fascinating as well. I think with the degree of uh, leverage that we do have, it is difficult to see interest rates having to move up very far before that has implications. And I think that's why people have been so nervous about these very modest moves that we've actually seen in the 10-year Treasury curve. And just to reiterate your point about more borrowing, there is definitely more borrowing happening. A couple of other stories that I thought were interesting this morning is that the Greeks now are back in the market with a 30-year bond, the first time they've raised money at this duration since 2008. Now, the Greeks think that this is an opportunity to raise money, and the French are talking about a 7 billion euro green bond. So there's plenty of government uh, sovereign uh, um, flow lining up uh, to take advantage of continuing easy monetary conditions. Uh, And it's just a story that we have to continue to watch, coming back to Karen's point, as we check the pulse on those bond market vigilantes. But Jerome Powell's uh, press conference after the Fed decision will be uh, on cnbc.com, of course, and we will track the whole event across the CNBC business day. So make a point of staying with the channel, Steve. Excellent. Right, let's move on. Coming up on the show, uh, polls are set to open shortly for the last day of voting in the Netherlands national election. I'm gutted. I was there four years ago, Karen. I was standing in that very point. Could have been where, there today. With our cameraman, Gert, who is still there. I'm pretty jealous, actually. It was fantastic. And then, I, well, I'll tell you what I did afterwards, after the break. But then we're going to discuss what could lie ahead uh, for the Netherlands next with uh, the next government, with Jus Sneller, who is a candidate for the Liberal D66 party. Will they be part of a coalition going forward? Well, we'll ask Mr Sneller what he thinks after the break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Right. Oh, so, yes, yeah, so I'll just tell you briefly, four years, to, almost to the day I was in the Netherlands, actually in The Hague, where we just had that shot, um, interviewing Rutter and people. And it was absolutely fascinating because it took them ages to form a government thereafter. I just, I just saw the photos. So I we have confirmation on yeah. set that you were there. Yeah, Rutter and Macron is weird, isn't it? Anyway, voters in the Netherlands are going to the polls for a third and final day today. With forecasts taken prior to the vote, uh, putting the incumbent, Mark Rutte, and his VVD party as the favourites by a long shot as well. Uh, this election, though, could still have significant bearing on the shape of the new Dutch government, as ever, and its post-COVID recovery plans, both domestically and on a European level. Well, Hugh Sneller is with us. Uh, he's a candidate for D66. Used really nice to reminisce about four years ago and, and how long it took Mr Rutte to put together a government last time around, a government that D66, of course, part of the coalition. I presume you believe, like the rest of us, that the VVD is going to get a a decent number of the seats again and that your party will try and form part of the coalition as well, sir. 
a decent number, but they've been, the Conservatives from the VVD have been sliding in the past couple of weeks, so it's going to be a very tight race today, I believe. But yes, uh, we are positioned very well for the next uh, coalition uh, talks, yes. I'm seeing it slightly differently from you. I'm seeing actually that VVD will pick up a few seats actually and get nearer to 38, 40 seats, which makes it slightly easier for them to form a coalition. I'm seeing D66 perhaps losing a couple of seats, maybe as many as four, which perhaps lessens your negotiating position. Am I, am I misreading this a bit? According to the polls I've seen, VVD picking up a little bit, D66 and some of the others just losing ground a little. Well, the four major pollsters came out with their uh, most recent uh, polls yesterday evening and they're showing us uh, at almost the same level and uh, with the momentum sloping upwards, whereas the VVD in some polls has lost uh, about 10 seats in the polls over the past one and a half months. So it's, uh, it's always difficult, and especially in Corona times, of course, it's very difficult to poll these kind of elections. Uh, but yes, uh, they are the front runner in the, in the elections. But of course, as you mentioned, uh, this is a coalition government. So it's very important uh, for the second and third positions who will be positioned for the next coalition. Uh Yes, I think it's quite stunning as we look at your country from the, the outside in and, and what we've witnessed, uh, you know, violent protests on the street around uh, COVID restrictions, around this anti-curfew riots, resignation of the cabinet back in January over a child benefit scandal, yet Teflon Mark seems to be uh, managing to evade some of these issues. Uh, Mark Rutter, as he's been called uh, Teflon Mark in the past, what's going on here? Why is his leadership start connecting with the public there in the Netherlands? Well, the campaign has been taking place under a sort of a veil of the corona crisis, of course. Uh, so it's very, it's been relatively difficult for other parties to raise other concerns, which are, of course, coming right behind this uh, COVID crisis, like the climate crisis or the need for more investment in education and science. Um, and so I think it's been a lot of rallying around the flag kind of a feeling uh, during this whole COVID crisis, but it's starting to wane off. As I mentioned, uh, the VVD has been losing in the polls. Uh, so it's this, this Teflon layer is, is really starting to crack, it seems. But uh, for the moment, they are still the front runner with a couple of other parties, including mine, uh, coming up behind them. Just, does the Netherlands need a reset in its relationship with Brussels? It seems that there is rising Euroscepticism, partly because of the Netherlands' position as one of the frugal four. So there was this resistance to uh, raising funding for the pandemic uh, protection support uh, fund, but also because of the mishandling, it seems, of the COVID vaccination rollout. Is it time for a refresh and a reset in the relationship? And if so, in which way? Well, we are the most pro-European party in Parliament and we were not opposed to common borrowing. So if you would ask me, uh, we would need leaders in the Netherlands who will actually defend the European ideal and also send a message to the Dutch public how important our membership of the European Union is for our economy, for our health, for our security. Uh, instead of a, a leader who goes out uh, in Europe, he acts kind of European, but back in the Netherlands, he doesn't defend his deals, but actually blames Brussels for a lot of the things he needs to do. And the same with climate change. 
Uh, I see him uh, speaking at the UN and saying climate, we should tackle the climate crisis. Uh, but back in the Netherlands, he's actually putting his foot on the brake uh, when it comes to implementing uh, the, the necessary uh, measures or for us to raise our targets, which we have all missed in the past couple of years. And there's a growing sense that um, there continues to be a difficult relationship between the UK and Brussels over Brexit. Um, give us your view here, because the Netherlands is a major exporter into the UK. And obviously, any further friction risks damaging uh, Dutch trade into the UK. Yeah, so for us, it was a big disaster, uh, Brexit. Uh, and it also has dampened all prospects of an exit, which was a, a relatively good side effect. But for us, it's very important to have the common market as integrated as possible for our econ economy, for our exporters. We're, of course, a small export-oriented country. Uh, so any regulatory divergence or otherwise um, more barriers to trade, uh, we would be opposed to. So, yes, it's a very important issue uh, back here in the Netherlands. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.